So tonight I'll offer a few reflections on our theme, but I want to begin um, inviting you to listen to the birds for half a minute. And notice the the way you can't do listening. You can only be here and let the sound come to you. So let's, I just invite that for a minute. How would it be to listen to ourselves in the same way that we might listen to the bird song? Because I'm guessing that as you sat there just now, at least intending to listen, that you didn't, well, let's see, I can ask you if you did, but <laughs> did you think, oh, too much of that one, and I want some more of that one, and that one's not quite right, and... Why don't they do it over there instead of over there? Did any of you have those thoughts? <laughs> when, we are clear, when we clearly know something is of the nature of things, in a very clear especially it's easier when it's relatively pleasant to start with, like most of that is probably registering for most of you as pleasant, but I don't know. It's variable. It's easier, isn't it, to, to not find fault with it. It's easy to recognize that's not something that's in my control. That's not something I have to fix or organize or get right or present to someone or, right? Which is so often what we do with our own content that appears to be arising within this little circuit board we call myself, right? And you might say, well, that's a ridiculous analogy. They're out there. I'm the one who's here, suffering with all my thoughts and feelings and wants and aversions and all of that. But I just invite that. How would it be to listen, to rest back and listen to breath, to body, to thoughts, to feelings, without believing that we have to do anything about it? And that's the question that I asked earlier. What would it be to completely accept ourselves as we are right now? And we looked at and heard from some of you some of the objections of why it might not be a good idea to completely welcome and embrace the totality of what we are. Where the mind isn't completely sure that's a good idea or even knows how to, as somebody else said. So this is one piece I'll begin with before, and uh, I'll leave this with you. This is from um, the, the famous psychologist Carl Jung. He said, the most terrifying thing for a human being is to accept oneself completely. Isn't that interesting? And 
hopefully I'll pick that up either later tonight or, or tomorrow. But I just leave that with you. Why it might actually be a challenge to the status quo of who we think we are to completely embrace what arises internally, to welcome it, to not have to believe it all, but to welcome it, honor it, and let it arise and pass, just as the birdsong does, just as the weather does, just as we don't really complain. In that, Well, we might complain, but we don't believe we have any um, uh, fault or agency if the clouds come across the sky. You know, we don't say, oops, I've done that wrong, right? How would it be to know ourselves so deeply as of the nature of things that we're allowed to rest, to take our hands off, to stop trying to manipulate and squeeze ourselves into some shape that we think we're supposed to be? So um, first I want to start a little bit with some of the things that make it hard to accept ourselves completely. And some of it's really a lot of habit a lot of habit of this um, negativity bias that I was talking about earlier. (coughs) Number one, rejection 101, first piece, which probably most of us recognize. And if you don't recognize, I'll tell you, I'll I'll give you some clues. First form, most obvious form of non-self-acceptance is what we classically call the inner critic. Right, so we spoke about it a little bit earlier. The harsh, judgmental voice of self and other who gives us a hard time. Uh, we're doing it wrong, we're saying it wrong, they're doing it wrong, they're saying it wrong. We should shape up better, we shouldn't still be working on this. We should be somewhere else, someone else, someone better, etc., etc. Very, very, very painful. Layer a very painful... Um, groove of the mind that that we often have some kind of allegiance with. Somebody said in the group today, um, he said, that when I asked the question about what's right about not accepting yourself, he said he also asked the question, or it came to him, uh, well, we got to the question, what's right about continuing to judge yourself? What's right about using the inner critic as the guidance, as the one who tells you who you are, how you're supposed to be, etc. And he said, he reflected interestingly, he said, but, but that's what I am. That's how I often meet myself in the world, through this kind of judgment of things. He said, if that wasn't there, who would I be? There'd be nothing left. There'd be nothing left. And I think this is a very interesting reflection that he made because we are trained, or we're we're not even trained, the fact that we're not trained, that we don't have a meditative training, means that we do believe the contents of our mind to be who we are. Don't we? Well, tell me if you don't. The thought says, you're rubbish, Ever had that thought, that terrible, ghastly tyrant in your mind? The thought says it, so it's like, oh, okay, I'm rubbish. Right? The thought says, 
Um, well, you said that wrong. You shouldn't have opened your mouth there. Oops, I said that wrong. I shouldn't have opened my mouth there. We're using that as a guidance, as a reference, as a self-definer. And the more we do that, the more limited and narrow our sense of ourself becomes. So this is the first piece to look at when looking at acceptance, the ways that we may be using the inner critic as some kind of inner guide. Very interesting how come, but first I want to put it in a context that, firstly, if, none, if you don't recognize that you have an inner critic, and um, it, it, because it shows up differently for us, um, some people it's really loud and clear, like a loud hailer, commenting moment to moment, you know, right, wrong, you know, left, right, commenting all the time. For some people it's not so verbal. It's a little bit more like a kind of energetic tyrant. I don't mean energetic, lively. I mean a kind of atmosphere of an inner tyrant that just kind of treads on us if we show some signs of life or, um, you know, pipe up with something or want to come out with something. Remember like that, for those of you who are old enough to remember, I, I like that I'm old enough to say that now. I, I was always, it was always other people that said that. For those of you old enough to remember, and I was never one of those, but now I am getting to be. Um, for those of us old enough to remember, at the beginning of Monty Python, when they have that kind of boot, that cartoon boot that comes down and just goes, right, on whatever it's squashing, that sometimes our inner tyrant can feel like that. We don't even hear it tell us how rubbish we are. It's just something that's come in and cut off our life force and we feel collapsed or despairing because we kind of feel crushed at its mercy, as it were. Some of us don't necessarily tell ourselves those stories, but we tell it about others. We haven't heard the way we're doing it to ourselves yet because it's like the wallpaper. It just seems like the truth. But we might catch it with the judgments we put on others. Why do they look like that? Why are they wearing that? Why should Right? That's a cue. And we, we rarely do it one way. It's usually going both ways. Right? So I want to let you know you're also in very good company. That the critic... Uh, groove, using that as our guide. And one of the reasons we stick to it, we have an allegiance to it, I think, as the friend said today, who would I be if it wasn't there? What would be left? What would be left? Is the allegiance is that it does give us company. It is a companion, albeit a tyrannical companion. We're not sure also what would be our guide for morality, some of us, if something wasn't telling us right, wrong, right, wrong, right, wrong all the time as a guide. Would, would my actions be ethical if I wasn't constantly keeping a rein on myself? And I think that's an important question because I think as we mature as adults, we can have a very real moral guide that is not based on this um, constriction of the inner critic. But we have to learn uh, to, to keep stepping out from under that and seeing what the real ethical guidance is, 
when we're not looking in a way to these kind of surrogate parents of the inner critic. But the good company you're in is with the Buddha himself. And we can see if we look at the stories of uh, the saints and sages that the inner critic is a structure that follows them. It's, uh, and for the Buddha, it was right there, right up until the night of his awakening. He took his seat on the kusala grass. He made a little cushion of grass and took his seat and made his determination. And he said, I'm going to sit here until I see... And he said, actually, until my blood runs dry and my bones become brittle. I'm going to sit here. He made this extraordinary heroic determination until I see what's possible for a human being to see. When we make a determination, and ours may not be quite so gung-ho, or it may be. I don't know what your, your fire for being awake is. But when we make such a determination to come on a retreat, to be courageous enough to look at our own mind and start to question the beliefs of who we've taken ourselves to be, the critic can arise. And for the Buddha, when he made that determination, all kinds of things started to assail him, all kinds of uh, inner workings of his mind that were really hard to be with. All right, As some of you may have experienced today, pushes and pulls, I'd rather be there, I want to be doing something else. All of these things coming forth, assailing him, or as someone said in the group today, plaguing me. My mind was plaguing me. (coughs) Towards the end, as he continued that determination and just kept seeing it, kept seeing all these things without buying into them, then came the critic. Who do you think you are sitting there thinking you can be free? That was what happened for him. That voice, that doubt, that um, constricting tyrant, or potentially constricting tyrant, actually it's just an old track that was running through him. Because of the stability of his mind, because of the qualities that had been developed in his practice, he could see the inner critic for what it was. He could step back into the knowing aspect of mind. Remember today we've been talking about there's the breath and there's the knowing of it. That bright, awake, knowing aspect of mind that can see clearly and from that he discerned, ah, this is Mara, he called it. Mara means delusion. Basically, this is something coming to tell me who I am. But it's an old story. It's an old groove. It's an old record. If we sit with our mind, we'll see it a hundred times. It's not fresh. It's not original. And one of the markers of being awake is that the mind is fresh. The heart is awake. It can respond in an original, I don't mean original meaning, you know, wildly creative necessarily, but in a fresh way. So he could see, ah, this is delusion, and it evaporated. And the story goes on to tell of his awakening. 
So this is the first layer that many of us see and revisit many times. And ways we can work with it are many. We can be creative with it. But first thing, we have to recognize it for what it is. It is an old track. It is a surrogate parent, in a way, a surrogate moral guide. It's not fresh. It is tyrannical and it's, it's, one of its functions is to keep us limited, to keep us as the person of our history, the shape that we got to somewhere along our development, whatever kind of shape we took, that we don't want to move too far out of for fear of rocking the boat, for fear of not knowing what's there, for fear, as somebody said, of I might be out of control, for fear of what else is there if I'm not defining myself in that negativity. And that's the journey of faith and trust. And that's why stepping beyond the critic is a a spiritual practice, actually. So there's many, many ways to work with it, and maybe we'll pick those up tomorrow, but the first thing is really seeing, oh, this is judgment, naming it, labeling it, ah, this is judgment. Rather than judging ourselves for judging, have any of you seen that? And then, oh my God, I'm judging the judgment, that's really bad. (laughs) That's really, really bad. I must be the worst kind of judge here because not only am I judging the judgment of the judgment, I'm judging that. And then we're in this kind of morass of bondage and we want to get the hell out of Gaia House because it feels so terrible. And we don't see that and we think, we look around and go, oh my God, it's Gaia House. Gaia House is terrible. Right? It's the paint on the walls. Why don't they paint it in here? And then we start building some fantasy and story of a mind-made world because we can't quite in that moment touch the ground and say, ah, this is judgment. It's a beautiful piece from an Indian teacher, Kirpal Vananji. He said, break your heart no longer. Each time you judge yourself, you break your heart. You stop feeding on the love that is the wellspring of your vitality. But now the time has come, your time, to live to celebrate and to see the goodness that you are. Break your heart no longer. Do you dare? Do you dare? (laughs) So a little bit more about rejection before we can celebrate here. Rejection number two, rejection 202, is not the critic necessarily, but the knee-jerk way that we can have a habit of simply rejecting what's here. It's different than the critic. We're not saying it's, it's uh, we're not telling ourselves that we're good or bad. Or It's just, I don't like this. I don't want this. Any of you had that at all today about anything? <laughs> about your body, about the pain, about your mind, about Guy House, about dinner, about... And even they say it's beautiful here, but I don't like it, right? Right, that way that the heart has gotten hardened sometimes and we just want to push everything and everybody away. Sometimes it's very subtle. It can just be a kind of irritable, scratching grumpiness. 
Sometimes it's, you know, we've already written our manifesto in the feedback form at Guy House saying, I hated this and I hated that and I hated the other thing. Right? And again, it's another groove in the mind that we want to see called aversion. It's simply uh, a tendency towards contending with reality, contending with what's here. Often in the belief that if I didn't contend with what was here, it wouldn't get any better. Remember, we looked at that earlier around acceptance, that sometimes fighting reality can become a style for some of us, even if we do it quietly. Sometimes we fight reality loudly, and sometimes we fight it quietly with a rejection internally. I'm not here speaking about wishing to stand up for things or to say no in the world when we need to say no. That does not have to be aversion. That can come from real love and strength. But this is different, and I'm sure you know the difference, of when it comes with a pushing and a shoving and an irritable rejection of what's here. It's the overlooking ourselves. So in the meditation today, just when our mind is wanting something else, there's a subtle rejection of what is here, we feel it. The heart-mind feels rejected when we overlook what's here in search of a better moment. Did any of you have that today? Maybe there'll be a better moment a bit later on. Right? Hanging out for Monday or wishing I was somewhere else. The way we ignore ourselves the way we don't value ourselves, the way we misunderstand what is here. Always wishing for something else. Somebody once said, I can't remember, he worded it very nicely, but it was along the lines of, uh, human beings are characterized by the fact that whatever it is they're doing, they think they should be doing something else. right? Wherever it is we are, there's that, oh, this isn't quite right. There's something else that's where it's at. Do any of you recognize that? That we can't quite settle. There's a kind of almost like a little motor of agitation kind of driving us on to the next thing or wishing we were back somewhere else. So in practice, as we slow down and take our seat and willing to sit with the knee pain and the breath and sometimes the boredom and sometimes the deepening in the quiet and the peace and the widening and the softening and sometimes the the aversion, we can start to learn the um, signposts for the spiritual path which are not about getting the right experience and then hanging out there forever, because there isn't such a one. And that was one of the Buddha's insights. He got some of the coolest experiences you can get in his meditation. Very, very subtle, refined, blissful, uh, formless, fantastic uh, states. 
But he realized that even those were subject to change. They belong also to the nature of things. They arise, these states, and therefore they pass. The states that arise in our mind are not the refuge that we seek. He pointed to a refuge that is not conditioned in the way that things that come and go are. So we learn the signposts of the spiritual path that are not about collecting the right kinds of experience. He said, the Buddha said, fools seek for experience. The wise seek to understand it. Right. So as long as we don't mind being called fools, it's not a... It sounds a bit like a judgment, doesn't it? <laughs> I thought he wasn't supposed to judge me. What we can see, the foolish part, is we keep searching for another thing and maybe that will be it. Some of you know the story, very nice one, from Mullah Nasruddin, the the Sufi wise man who acted like a fool so that we would wake up ourselves. And the story, many, many teaching stories, and there he is, Mullah, with his big pile of chilies in the marketplace, eating these chilies, chewing chewing, tasting, face going hot, perspiration, angst, you know, agitation. And his students were looking at him in amazement. And he kept taking another chili and kept taking another chili. And they go, Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? And he said, I'm eating chilies. And they said, yeah, we can see you're eating chilies. Why are you eating chilies? And he says, as he's perspiring, I keep hoping I'll find a sweet one keep hoping and that cycle of hoping always for a better experience you know that one it's almost like we're kind of wired for it almost almost you can feel the heart lurching forward yes that better experience in a minute it will come when we're tied to the hope for the sweet chili we are also tied to the fear that we will never get it We're in a cycle of hoping and fearing and constantly rejecting what is here. So the spiritual signposts are not about getting the right experience. It's about how we relate to it. That changes the landscape entirely from moaning or or being angry with my knee pain or um, clamping down on my heart because it feels sad and judging it to opening to the knee pain, opening to the sadness, opening to the not knowing of the breath and finding my way with that, starts to reveal a different um, pathway for us. That the acceptance isn't just uh, the final piece. That as, again, Carl Jung said, we can own, something only begins to change once we fully accept it. Fully turn and say, yes, it's like this. This heart, this breath, this not knowing what's going on, this joy. Right? That the signposts start to show what is possible and what can be revealed when we're no longer contending with reality. 
doesn't mean we have to like it. doesn't mean we have to like our knee pain. doesn't mean we have to like our sadness or our anxiety. We might even find we're rejecting it. Acceptance is not the opposite of rejection in that case. Acceptance will be the acceptance of my rejection. Right? Oh, I seem to be rejecting my heart right now. We start to open to that. And then many things are possible. It's a poem from the beautiful poet David White. It's called The Well of Grief. He says, Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning downward through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, We'll never know the source from which we drink, the secret water, cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown away by those who wished for something else. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning downward through its black water, to the place we cannot breathe, we'll never know the source from which we drink, the secret water, cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown away by those who wished for something else. Those who wish for something else. That's us, isn't it, sometimes? until we get it. As somebody said today, she goes, I think I'm getting it. There's no escape. She goes, I thought I would come here to escape, but I actually realized I'm here too. Right? And that no escape is not bad news. It might feel like it at first because there may be some of the pains and the dents and the wounds and the bruised parts of ourself that haven't yet been able to be welcomed. They can surface part of the healing, and we learn how to meet those in practice. But the wisdom of no escape is to take the seat and say, okay, this is it, this is my life, it doesn't begin tomorrow. It didn't happen yesterday, it's here in this seat with this breath, with this body, with this aspiration, with this longing, with this confusion, with this aversion, with this great love. It's this. It's not somewhere else. And turning and bowing with reverence to this, this is where we begin to discover what the men and women of many cultures and traditions who've gone deeper below the surface have come to show us is possible for us when we're willing to take our seat with what's here. So enough about rejection for now. It's not all that happens, because if that's all that happened, you wouldn't be here. There's a way that even, yes, as, as our friend said today, I came here to try and escape too. 
that's part of it, isn't it? Wouldn't we all like just some easy medicine that we could dish out on Friday night and say, hey, take this. You can go home Saturday morning and we're done. But the journey is more, actually more ennobling than that. The spiritual journey in the Buddhist tradition is known as the, as the noble path. It is a path that if we're willing to keep coming back to take the steps, it ennobles us in the very act of being willing to keep coming back, keep coming back. We grow, oh, actually, that's not the right way of saying it, we shed all of the old limited definitions of ourselves tenderly, slowly, clearly, and come into the nobility of what we are, all of us. The ennobling path, which is actually something more profound than being able to give you a medicine on a Friday night, but something that tempers us, anneals us, clarifies us, purifies us, steadies us, grows us, shapes us, step by step. And not in any way that we can start to go, well, am I getting it yet? Because you know how when we keep doing that when we're practicing, it's like, well, am I getting any better? You know, is anything changing? Am I learning anything? One of my teachers used to say, he, he noticed he was doing that in his practice, kept looking back, well, is it, is it making any difference yet? And he said it, it reminded him of when he was a kid and the first time he was growing carrots in the garden. And the first time the little shoots snuck up over the earth, the surface of the earth, the little green fronds. And he said he was so excited that he'd start to yank them all out to see how big they were, right? But there's something very patient in this work that cultivates, actually, along the way, patience, perseverance, steadfastness, as well as the joy, the faith, the trust, all of these. We don't have to come with them. I like what Matt said earlier about it's not something we have to have mastered already. Do any of you think that you should have mastered it already? You know, we're sitting there struggling with our breath, struggling with our body. We have barely half a breath before we're thinking about pizza or whatever it is. And it's like, oh, I can't get this. I shouldn't have come. Obviously, they're all getting it. And we look around, open our eyes, and everyone looks still and serene, and they're obviously all getting it, but I'm not. What would it be to shift from seeking for experience to seeking to understand it, to stand under it, to stand with it? so that we can start to take our seat in the totality of things. But we come to retreat just to um, make it a little bit more manageable, that we just have to deal with this person on this cushion for now. Right? The world is big, and it sometimes can feel overwhelming, but for right now, I just have to deal with this one. Rumi says it very well. 
This poem is called Guest House. He says, This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still treat each guest honourably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So this is what we begin to practice of meeting our experience. And in the meditation, we're giving the emphasis today not on um, trying to kind of fling ourselves open and go, okay, I have to accept everything. Oh my God, how am I going to do that? That's impossible, right? I, I introduced the mandala meditation for 15 minutes to start to open to some of the conditions that have made us us on a conventional level. Right? But largely today we've been working with stabilizing the mind because if we are to know what it is like to be the guest house and to treat each guest honorably, we have to be quite stable. We have to be quite grounded, somebody mentioned last night. We have to know what it is to cultivate a stable, steady mind. Calm, steady, rooted. Because only then can we really see things clearly. The capacity of the Buddha to say, oh, that's delusion. That capacity to see aspects of our mind and go, huh, I don't have to follow that. Thank you very much. Treat each guest honorably. And good night. That takes some stability of mind and some clear seeing. And these are the two factors of insight meditation. Stabilizing the mind and the clear seeing, which we'll pick up a little bit more tomorrow, the insight, the seeing into experience. So stabilizing the mind, how's that going? How's it going? How would you even assess how it's going, given the carrot story? How stable am I? Can you tell me? Am I getting more stable? It doesn't mean that everything that arises is stable. Quite the opposite. The things that can pass through us can feel very unstable at times, can't they? Like the anxiety that comes through or the sadness or the passion or the excitement or the the boredom or the meanness or the joy or the excitement. All of those things can feel or can let us become unstable if we follow them. Blindly. The stabilizing of mind is not to reject them, 
but it is to learn what is it that I can center around that is stable, that is grounding, that gives me a platform from which to start to meet reality. So this is, I'll speak about that for a few minutes because this is a major part of the meditative journey, the capacity to stabilize, the attention. The need for stability is clear in us beings, us human beings. Everybody needs something to stabilize around to find our feet with, to let us know where we are in any one moment. Right? And the normal ways that we do this are, and they can be very wholesome also and be totally fine, the normal ways we do this are with our um, relationships, our family, our family of origin, let's say, that we we. Uh, center around the family. Traditionally, cultures have done that. It's less and less available for many <coughs> in the West. <coughs> but that becomes our stabilizing, or that traditionally is a stabilizing, for better or for worse, it's a kind of stabilizing function that a family has. Religion is another place where people do it. They center around um, a religion or an ideology or or. Science. We could center around science. Is that that's that's the thing that's real? I'll center around that. That's the thing I can get my bearing from. Um, we can center around our job, right? We can get our stability from that, and that very often reveals itself um, as uh, not a very reliable stabilizing thing. When sometimes when people come to retire. Not always, of course, but sometimes people feel at a loss when there's no longer the things that have stabilized us. They're no longer around. Or the relationships change. Or the family isn't there. Or the family actually isn't something that can be centered around. Then very often we're left with ourselves. We try and center around something in ourselves. What can I get my stability from? And very often we do it through ideas, right? I get an idea that I'm holding on to and that's, that's the thing and I circle around it and stabilize my mind around it. Some of us, we might have practices that we stabilize around that may be very wholesome, you know, like we might go running three times a week and we have some kind of orientation to that. It helps keep us steady and stable. So it's very normal that we would seek something to stabilize around, some, something to get our bearing from, right? And those things can be more or less skillful. We can see that the tighter and more limited the thing is that we try and stabilize around, the more tight and restricted the sense of self is. So, for example, a good example of that would be when a, a religion becomes, or a pocket of a religion, let's say, or a philosophy or an ideology becomes very fundamentalist, right? We, we, we're using it for stability. Out of fear, we're drawn like, um, what are we drawn like? We're drawn like a magnet to something that we hope will stabilize us, right? When we feel very uncertain in the world. 
So those things can be more or less skillful, but the Buddha in his um, brilliance recognized, yes, as human beings on the path, we need things to stabilize around. The freedom that he's pointing to, the end of the path, is a freedom where the heart-mind does not have to lean on anything anymore to get its bearing. Right? That the, the, what is called the chitta, the heart-mind, is free when it is not having to attach to something, not having to lean on something to, to get our bearing. But he said, on the way to that, we're not all there yet, on the way to that, lean on, stabilize around supports that actually help you lead onward toward the goal. Stabilize around things that are reliable, that are wholesome, that are beneficial, that actually support you to stabilize and go deeper and wider. So one of the ways, there are many aspects of the path that are just that, right? We'll speak about them more at the end. The meditative piece is only one piece of the path, of the puzzle. So from the meditative point of view, we are stabilizing today around body, around breath, that the breath will be here until we are no longer here. Right? It's reliable in that sense. It's here and now. It's not in the past. It's not in the future. It's not going to spin you into some kind of um, unhelpful activity. So he said, um, cultivate the mind. Stabilize with the body breathing. This will give you ground. This will give you stability. This will give you um, a capacity to rest, actually. This will bring a kind of peace, a relative kind of peace, not the ultimate peace that he's pointing to, but a relative peace that will let us be steady in the world with what comes to us internally and externally. So he says, cultivate this, work on this. It takes time, it takes time. But this will be for your long-term benefit if we give time to exercising this muscle of finding something steady to stabilize the mind around. We're doing it today with the walking meditation. Every time you put your foot on the earth, And there's some mindfulness there. There's some presence. There's some registering of the foot on the earth. We are letting go of stabilizing, trying to stabilize around our thoughts and feelings and coming into something that is a little bit more tangible. Body. Body touching earth. Returning ourselves as creatures of the earth. This will be for Um, stabilizing the mind. So a number of you have talked about anxiety and one of the greatest supports actually when we're spinning in anxiety, either in the story of the anxiety or the energetic, fizzing, buzzing um, pain of anxiety is to go and plant our feet in the earth. 
to put our toes back in the earth and feel that connection. Because we really can't do this on our own. We can't hold all of what comes to us on our own. We need to plug ourselves back into the totality of which we are a part. To believe that we are separate, limited, isolated little creatures is a wrong view. This is something the Buddha spoke very clearly to. That we put our feet firmly back in the earth and give ourselves back, relinquish our hold on reality, relinquish our wish to control everything that comes to us or comes up in us, our willingness to bow before the earth and say, I can't do this on my own. We're not meant to do it on our own. In fact, the Buddha would go so far as to say, there isn't a on my own. That already itself is a wrong view, which we'll look at a little bit more tomorrow. So in the mandala meditation, when we began to open up to the totality, and I only named a few of the conditions our family, our ancestors, our education, our language, our vulnerabilities, our strengths, our weaknesses, the trees, the ecosystem, the the land, the earth that feeds us, the whole thing, we're never ever apart from it. Only the thought that tells us that we are. So I want to finish um, tonight and invite you to join in a song with me that speaks to this first part of our practice together. And the words go like this. It it says, um, you always belong to totality. You were never separated even though you did not see. Right? The Buddha's pointing us to clear seeing where we understand the emptiness and the end of separation. So it goes, you always belong to totality. You were never separated even though you did not see. And all of the conditions that brought you here, all of the things that made you you, so all of the conditions that brought you here, they are welcome. Touch them kindly. Let them be. You always belong to totality. You were never separated even though you did not see. And all of the conditions that brought you here, all of them, they are welcome. Touch them kindly. Let them be. Everything that you're carrying, everything that we have taken to be us, welcoming it all here. So the melody goes like this, and I'll do it with my hand up and down so you get it, right? Because it's got a little bit of a melody in it. We'll see how we go. Okay, so it goes like this. Um, I'll teach it line by line, then I'll just do this, and then we'll sing it a few times together. Okay, it goes like this. Some of you know it, actually. It goes... You always... I'll do that afterwards. You always belong to totality. You were never separated even though you did not see. 
And all of the conditions that brought you here, they are welcome. Touch them kindly. Let them be. So I'll do it line by line. So at first I'll do it. You always belong to totality. Some of you have got it already. That was quick. Wow. So so we'll try that line. You always belong to totality. Shall I just do this and not do it? Call and response. Who am I asking? Call and response. Okay. You were never separated even though you did not see. You were never separated even though you did not see. And all of the conditions that brought you here. And all of the conditions that brought you here. They are welcome, touch them kindly, let them be. They are welcome, touch them kindly, let them be. Okay, so now we'll just do this if you want to join in. You always belong to totality. You were never separated even though you did not see. And all of the conditions that brought you here, they are welcome, touch them kindly, let them be. You always belong to totality. You were never separated even though you did not see. And all of the conditions that brought you here, they are welcome, touch them kindly, let them be. Okay, a couple more times. You always belong to totality. You were never separated even though you did not see. And all of the conditions that brought you here. They are welcome, touch them kindly, let them be. Last time. You always belong to totality. You were never separated even though you did not see. And all of the conditions that brought you here, they are welcome, touch them kindly, let them be.
May all beings rest deeply on the earth. May all beings know they are welcome. May all beings realize the heart's release from suffering. 